0: Hello, ladies, and welcome to Every Woman's Grace. Once again, here we are. We find ourselves separated by space, but certainly not by spirit. As I left our home this morning, I went into my husband's brand new corner office, which is also known as our family room, and I kissed him goodbye. And I was just struck with how blessed I am to be quarantined with this man that I love and who loves me. And then it occurred to me as well how blessed each one of us is to be quarantined with God. You know, we have this amazing opportunity to spend extra time with the God we love and the God who loves us so much. Being in the Word of God has been a balm to my soul. Um, as the world seems to be completely spinning out of control, God's Word is not only a comfort but I can truly say with with David in Psalm 119, verses 37 through 40, that my heart and my mind have been revived. It says this, turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. And there I have been revived. Um, I'm, I'm considering naming a journal for this period of time, quarantined with God, because I've just, I want to remember the things that God has taught me about him. And I want to be able to remember them so I can share them with other people. Well, let's look back at what we have been studying. In recent weeks, we've looked um, at God's commands to love one another sacrificially, just as Christ loved us. Because His return is getting closer, and we must be ready. So we need to put on our armor, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're to fight the battle of these last dark days with our armor on. This week, we receive even more practical words from Paul regarding how to live our love within the body of Christ. We're going to pay particular attention today to the area of judgment. Now, we will see that the body of Christ must be unified, and we're given another way to put our love into action. We're really aware of the importance of battling the sin that surrounds us, but we're going to see today that it's often our differences with believers which cause us much trouble. Learning to get along with people is always a difficult task, isn't it? Um, Over the four years that I was in college, I had eight different roommates. And when my own children went away to college— I told each one of them that aside from the academics that they were going to learn, one of the biggest lessons that they would come away with was how to get along with other people, people of different backgrounds. Likewise, the church is full of lots of different people from many different backgrounds. We're all at different stages of our sanctification, and some of us just have a hard time getting along with others. It can sometimes be a struggle to get along with with people that are very different than us. But God wants us to know how to get along with believers with whom we have distinct differences. So grab your Bibles and open them to today's passage. It is Romans 14, verses 1 through 12, and I'll read them. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems a day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord— since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that we We're told that we are to welcome those who are different than us. Um, There are some key words in these first verses, and we first need to understand what Paul means when he says weak, strong, welcome, opinions, and passing judgment. Hopefully, after today's study, we're going to have a better understanding of these words. Well, we immediately see that there are two separate groups in this letter. You know, throughout church history, there have been those who are strong in the faith and there have been those who are weak in the faith. The body of Christ is made up of both weak and strong Christians. Paul makes this point in chapter 14, and he does again in chapter 15, verse 1. He wants to affirm both as people in Christ— But there are some obstacles that he has to address first. In Rome, there were Christians from both Jewish backgrounds and Christians from Gentile or pagan backgrounds. These two were distinctly different from one another. So let's start with the Jewish Christians. Some of these were still committed to the traditions that they were raised in. It was hard for them to let go of those dietary laws, those feast days, and the Sabbath. They had been expected to follow these laws throughout their entire lives, believing that this was the way to bring glory to God. These new believers understood that they were saved through faith by the grace of God. They understood Ephesians, too, but they thought they thought they still needed to be glorifying God through these traditions. And it was really hard to break free. The Gentile Christians had been saved out of pagan idolatry. Their new freedom in Christ was limited by their old idolatrous practices. Uh, They had sacrificed meat to false gods, and they practiced immorality as part of their worship. And they didn't want anything to do with this anymore. Then, there were the Christians who understood that by God's grace and by Christ's sacrifice, all of the dietary laws and feast days no longer applied. They believed that an idol was simply a piece of wood or a stone, and it was nothing more than that. So, who cares if meat had been sacrificed to a nothing? So, what happens? There's conflict. One saw liberty as sinful. And the liberated Christians saw legalism as sinful. They looked at each other, one with contempt and the other with judgment. Criticizing and judging each other is easy, isn't it? Um, it it, it's, It's actually very easy to be a critical person. Weaknesses in others tend to be very, very easy to spot. But it can be hard to love those who are not like us. Paul is addressing those who are strong in the faith and those who are weak in the faith. It's not a question of whether they're not of whether or not they are in the faith. It's clear that these are all true believers. This passage gives warnings and instructions to both, but it places a greater responsibility to get along on those who are strong. Why? Well, because they know more. They have a deeper understanding at this point in their sanctification. Many of us might regard ourselves as strong in the faith. And the word strong is actually not even found in this passage, but it is implied. So as I studied this, I wondered if perhaps the word strong is is not used because it's our flesh, our faith, um, you know, our flesh In our flesh, excuse me, in our flesh, our faith will always have some weakness. First Corinthians 13.12 tells us that when we see in a mirror dimly until the day that our faith is made sight. Recognizing our weaknesses is important to our growth. Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 12.9, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore... I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Matthew Henry said, this is the Christian paradox, that when we are weak in ourselves, then we are strong in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul proclaimed in 2 Corinthians, for when I am weak, then I am strong. But it's clear that we're not all at the same place at the same time with regard to our sanctification. And because of this, the strong in faith are to welcome the weak in faith. But it can be a battle sometimes to receive and to welcome one another. What does it mean to welcome? Well, Some of your versions, depending on what your um, Bible translation is, they may say receive or accept instead of welcome. But it comes from the Greek word proslambano, and it means a personal and willing acceptance of another person. This is a command. It is not just a suggestion. It's the same word that we find in Romans 15, verse 7 just as Christ also accepted us for the glory of God. This is the way that those who are strong are to welcome those who are weak. We're to care for them with kindness and to walk right next to them, all for the glory of God. So who are the weak and why are they committed to their beliefs? Remember, these are people who are weak in the faith but they are of the faith. So those who are strong in the faith often see the weak in a kind of negative way. They sometimes think that the weak are legalistic or narrow or too rigid. But Paul is making a distinction for us. These are believers who are currently weak in their progress. They may be lower on the growth curve, but only for now. When this Greek word is translated, it carries with it the suggestion of a temporary condition. These weak believers don't claim that keeping these food and day's laws were for salvation. They knew better than that. And that's something that Paul would never have allowed. Paul's very clear in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The weak believe that it's out of obedience that they practice these things. They think that a good Christian should just do these things. They're true believers who are weak in their understanding, specifically in how to live out their liberty in Jesus Christ. This person hasn't yet discovered the meaning of Christian freedoms, they're not yet free of certain convictions so they stick to their consciences in these matters. Remember, these believers, they didn't have their leather-bound copy of the New Testament, and everything they knew about God and how to show their love for Him came from the Old Testament. Their opinions are not sinful, but Paul warns of something that may cause them to sin. The temptation for the weak is that they're tempted to condemn the strong in the faith, to pass judgment on them. They may look at the Christian who exercises her freedom in Christ and think, she's living too dangerously. Possibly she's in sin, or maybe she's not even saved. They require things of believers that the Bible doesn't require. And then they're tempted to pass judgment on these issues. Well, who are the strong, and why are they committed to their beliefs? Well, the strong in the faith believe that the Christians have all been freed from meaningless rules and traditions, and in Christ, they're free from sin, from death, from hell, from Satan. They have liberty in Christ, and they're now free to eat anything, and they can treat each day the same. One day is not more important than another. In fact, every single day is the same they honor the lord no matter the day no matter the meal they have an understanding of colossians 2:14 through 16 when it says that christ having forgiven us all of our sins has canceled the debt against us nailing it to the cross disarming and triumphing over satan and sin therefore Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. The gospel of Christ has no ceremony or diet necessary for salvation. And these strong believers are able to enjoy all that God has given and created because they understand the freedom that we have in Christ through the fullness of God's grace. But they too have a weakness. They are tempted to despise the weak. They may look at those who are strict in sticking to a set of rules or guidelines, and they can adopt an arrogant attitude toward them. They may even belittle them or make fun of them and say things like, Don't they understand that they're free in Christ? They're so legalistic. And sometimes in their arrogance, they think it's their job to fix the weak sister or the weak brother. Ladies, we're not to look at another believer and think, oh, yeah, I need to get to know her because she really needs to be set straight in certain areas. The strong are commanded to welcome the weak, not to quarrel with them. Because this might make them stumble. In Matthew 18:6 through7, Jesus gave a very stern warning for anyone who causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. Now it's important to note that we're not referring to um, uh, doctrinal and moral compromise. We are referring only to food and days or preferences. Scripture is clear on many issues. You may not get drunk with wine. In fact, in Ephesians 5.18, it says, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We may not have sex outside of marriage. Murder is forbidden. Lying is forbidden. We were just reminded these of these commands in the last chapter, chapter 13. Anything that God's word has declared as wrong is wrong. God has spoken, and these are not debatable. Confronting sin is very different than confronting preferences. We must confront one another when he or she has broken a clear biblical command. Matthew 18, 14 through 19 deals with these issues, but it's always done in a spirit of love and humility, with a desire for repentance and restoration, not judgment. But there are so many other areas, all those things in life that God has not given a clear yes or a clear no. And these are the areas where we are to be convinced and follow our own consciences. I want to read to you from First Corinthians 1. 1 through 9 in chapter 8. It says this, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols— we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom, through whom all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat foods as um, already offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and we're no better off if we do eat but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Sometimes our knowledge puffs us up. Our Romans passage says that those who understand their freedoms in Christ may be tempted to argue or quarrel with those who are weaker in the faith. They may feel that it's their duty to make them change, why do we do this? Evidently, it's a common problem. When our family gets together, we sometimes enjoy going around the room and asking everyone, including the littlest children who really, truly enjoy this exercise, we ask them to give one or two words that describe a chosen family member. Well, we did this recently before the quarantine, and one of them said about me, passionate well, they know me very well. I am a passionate person. God made me this way. Yet, I have had to learn over my lifetime that this passion that burns inside of me can also turn into being a bit argumentative. I really appreciated that this family member used the word passionate instead of argumentative to describe me because it tells me that I've seen some growth in this area, and I appreciate that. Sometimes our passion for truth can cause us a tendency to be critical or crabby Christians. Our knowledge of doctrine, those wonderful truths we learned in the first 11 chapters of Romans, they can cause us to argue theology with those who aren't as knowledgeable. And what does Paul say about this knowledge? He warned us, that it can puff us up. Knowledge alone puffs up, but love builds up. Our theology is so important, but it's useless without love. Doctrinal truth is our foundation, and love is what must drive us to live out these truths. It isn't forbidden to talk about our different opinions and why we hold them from a biblical perspective, but it's wrong to beat up a weaker believer with our doctrines. In fact, we just saw in chapter 13, verse 13, that strife and quarreling represents one who's not walking properly. We're to walk properly in the spirit. So if we have these conversations, we should have them in the spirit of love and not in the spirit of correction. A mark of a Christian is one who loves Christ and accepts and welcomes other believers. There are four reasons why we must welcome one another. The first reason why we must welcome one another is that God welcomes them. And this is key. When we understand that God has welcomed us with all of our flaws we're much more likely to welcome others with all of their flaws. We never want to not welcome someone whom God has already welcomed. Unity in the body is so important, and the strain on the relationships within the church at Rome resulted from very different backgrounds. The backgrounds of the believers prior to their conversion— we know that Paul was concerned about this because he wrote about it in Ephesians 4.3. He said that he desired to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And David said in Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Differences in our backgrounds are still things that might divide us. Some of us listening today have been saved out of a variety of backgrounds, some from Mormonism, Judaism, some from Roman Catholicism, humanism. We believers represent many different nationalities, cultures, social structures. There are things that other believers do differently than you and your family, and you may not approve of some of the things that other Christians do. This is a very real potential for conflict. So what are some of these areas for disagreement? Well, what about going to the movies? Should you or should you not go to the movies as a believer? Do you watch TV? Do you even own a television? And what about wearing makeup? Or if you wear makeup, how much makeup is acceptable? What we wear is a big deal. Is it okay women to wear pants are only dresses acceptable. There's playing cards. There's what day of the week we should worship. Oh, this is a big one. How about the schooling of our children? Do we public, private, or do we homeschool? Oh, no. So many things to divide us. How many children should you have? Is it okay to drink alcohol? Paul is going to bring this up in verse 17. And what about celebrating Christmas, or what about having a Christmas tree in your home? The list can go on and on, and these are all preferential um, issues, and they can cause conflict, and they can cause judgment. We sometimes even wonder how much fellowship we can have with another believer who lives differently than us in those areas. Remember, the definition of agapeo or agape love is to love unconditionally or sacrificially. And Paul is stressing the importance of our unity in Christ. Our our differences really actually strengthen the body of Christ, because they remind us that God has the power through Jesus Christ to make people of all nationalities, all belief systems, all traditions to be one unified through the gospel. Are you willing to sacrifice your opinions on these issues for the sake of another? Because that's what the stronger sister is being called to do. We need to understand the differences between our opinions, which we sometimes call the gray areas, and biblical commands, which are the black and white issues. We get ourselves into trouble when we start making those gray areas into black and white issues. When we become fully convinced in our own minds that we so convinced, we tend to want everyone else to be fully convinced as well. And we sometimes begin to think that our opinions are biblical. The gray issues become black and white issues in our minds. God has given many biblical commands that are non-negotiable, but He's also given us much freedom to discern those gray areas. There's a key to discernment, and it's knowing His Word and being led by the Spirit through His Word. We have to know His Word and to know and obey the commands before we're able to form our opinions on life's issues. First Peter one three says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence. And then there's Philippians two, thirteen through sixteen, and it says that we're to hold fast to the word of life. Ladies, if there's no command, no prohibition in a certain area, then there is freedom. In verse 5, we're told that our conscience plays a big role in this. We're to be fully convinced and follow our conscience. But we must stop judging our fellow Christians over non-biblical issues. In this passage, even though Paul tells the believers that both views on food and days should be tolerated, he does have an opinion on them. We know Paul's opinion because he made it clear in 1 Corinthians, that that passage that we already read. And um, if you read Acts 11, you know that Jesus said something specific about this when he told Peter to arise, kill and eat. What God has made clean, do not make common. I loved Thomas Schreiner's perspective on this. He says that although Paul sides with the strong in their opinions, he accepts the weak in their faith who have other opinions. This is amazing. Paul tolerates a wrong opinion. Wow. Why does he do this? Because their faith is weak. Their strict attention to following certain guidelines proves that they are weak, but they are of the faith. So Paul decided that even if he knew he was right, he wasn't going to make a big deal out of it. He's committed to their growth, and he does not want to make them stumble. He says so in verse 21 of chapter 14 of Romans. He understands that all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. Our Christian love should compel us to think of others first. To count others as more significant than ourselves, as Philippians 2, 1 through 8 tells us. The question we should all be asking ourselves is, do I allow for other believers to hold different opinions than I do on non-salvation or non-biblical issues? Or do I look down on them and try to argue them out of their positions? They hold their opinions because they're trying to honor the Lord just like you are. And we're told to welcome them, to stand right next to them, always with the understanding that it isn't in our power to make them stand or to keep them standing, because only God can do that. This is the second reason why we must welcome other believers, because God sustains them God gives faith and God keeps us in the faith. And we have to recognize that it's God who keeps us to the end. Hebrews 2:18 promises that because the Lord Jesus Christ suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. It's Jesus who keeps us from st- keeps us standing as we trip and stumble through this life. God alone keeps those he has chosen. Philippians 1.6 tells us, and of this, excuse me, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who saved us and will bring us to himself in the end. We're to look at Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's Hebrews 12 too. It's Jesus who grants us faith, grows our faith, and completes our faith. It's kind of weird that we sometimes behave as if we believe that another person's security and sanctification is up to us. The truth is, it doesn't matter at all what we think about another believer. What we think does not impact another person's standing before God in the very least. Paul says this very thing in 1 Corinthians 4, 3-5. through He says, to me, it's a very small thing that I should be examined by you, or by any human court. And he goes on to say, the one who examines me is the Lord. Another strong warning is given in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Therefore, let him who stands, who, excuse me, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. We need to stop judging others and we need to welcome them. And God alone can grow and sustain our faith because he is the Lord of all. Verse 4 referred to Christ as our master. Verse 6 describes him as Lord. And this is the third reason we must welcome one another, because Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Although our opinions differ with regard to freedom, they don't Oh, excuse me. Can I start over? <laughs> <clears throat> I'll start over at the third reason. OK. <clears throat> the third, and this is the third reason that we must welcome one another. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Although their opinions differ with regard to their freedom or whether or not they have the right to do or not to do something, they both desire to please the Lord. It's clear in verse 6 that both the weak and the strong believers were living out their consciences, and they had a heart of thanks to God. Verse 5 says that each were fully convinced in their own mind. The mind includes the heart and the conscience. It describes our deepest motives and our hard-held convictions. If one eats or doesn't eat, if one observes a certain day or not, they're both doing it to honor God. Notice it never says that one is more spiritual than the other, but what it does say is that they're both living in a way that would honor God. And we can make another believer stumble if we try to convince them to go against their conscience on any issue that is not forbidden in scripture. Likewise, we should never conform to another person's convictions. If it violates our own conscience in these gray areas, follow your conscience. Verse 8 gives us a succinct description of the sovereignty and the lordship of the Jesus Christ over us. It says, For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the living, and he is Lord of the dead. There's nothing he's not Lord of. He's Lord of our day, every day. He's Lord of what we eat or what we don't eat. He is Lord of our entertainment choices. He's Lord of our schooling choices, He's Lord of our dating or not dating choices. As Christians, we don't live for ourselves and we won't die for ourselves. The reason is the same for both. We belong to Jesus Christ. Everything we do, even our deaths, should be pleasing and glorifying and honoring to our Savior and our Lord. Just last week, a very dear sister in the Lord, lost her two-plus-year battle with a very cruel disease—cancer. As I read the many posts from her husband and her children and her friends, there was a common theme. In her life and all that she did, she sought to honor the Lord. And at the end, even in her very painful death, her eyes were on her Savior— And she left this world just as she entered eternity, praising and honoring the Lord. That's what this verse is meant to bring out in all of us. We belong completely to Christ because he bought us with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. As the one and only Lord of all, he is the judge of all, and all will give an account to him. There are probably just as many people in the world who can quote John 3.16 as those who refer to Matthew 7.1. It's really a favorite among human beings. It says, judge not that you be not judged. People use this verse incorrectly because they don't want to be judged, ever, ever. By anyone. But we have to understand judgment from a biblical perspective. First of all, we make judgments all the time. It's necessary to live our lives. For instance, we make judgments on the city or the neighborhood in which we'd like to buy a house. And we base that upon possibly the schools or the lower crime rates in that area. That's making a judgment. We make judgments on the church we choose to be a part of based upon their commitment to God's word. That is making a judgment. But Romans 14 isn't talking about making judgments. It's talking about passing judgment. Passing judgment is when you look past the other per- what the other person may have said or done, and you judge the heart and the motives of that person. For example, um, making a judgment is, Sally is often late to things. That's making a judgment. Passing a judgment would be, Sally is often late, which proves she's a self-centered person with no regard for others. Have you ever noticed that we cut ourselves a whole lot of slack We always give the benefit of the doubt to ourselves, and this happens all the time. I did it because I made a mistake. He did it because he's evil. We're commanded in Romans 14 to not pass judgment on one another. Why? Well, we don't have the authority. Who are you to judge your brother? Your brother and your your sister, they're equals with you. You and I have no authority to judge them. God has the authority. Psalm 50, verse 6 says, The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. And we can't know another person's heart. We don't have the knowledge and the insights to judge because we can't see into someone else's heart. We don't know why people do and say the things that they do and say jeremiah seventeen nine through ten says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. We can't judge because we can't judge righteously psalm seven eleven says God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignant every day. We also don't have the necessary platform. Romans 14:10 says, "Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. None of us is qualified to sit on God's throne." That belongs to Jesus Christ, our Lord, and our King, and we're never to attempt to do what is God's to do. There's a fourth reason for believers to welcome one another. The Lord alone will judge every believer. I was once chosen to serve as a juror on a murder trial, and it was a particularly vile and violent crime in which we, the jury, found the defendant guilty. I came away from that experience with a much deeper understanding of the seriousness of judging another human being. And I recall driving home from that very sobering trial and repenting of every time I had taken on the role of judge in another's life. That's God's role, and I don't want it. As I looked into the eyes of that young man as the verdict was read, my heart broke. I've often prayed for him over these years that God would save him from the sin that so completely engulfs him, and that one day, when he stands before the judge, God might mercifully be able to pronounce him guiltless because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Christ. Will judge all men in three distinct settings. First is the judgment of believers after the rapture. 1 Corinthians 3 12 through 15 explains it. It says, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Ladies, it's here that we're promised that we are going to be able to stand because our judge is the one who holds us up. The next setting will be the judgment of the sheep and the goats and the judgment of the nations. This is where the believers are separated from unbelievers. And we find this in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 33. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. He alone knows who are his. The third one is the great white throne of judgment of unbelievers. We find this in Revelation 20, verses 11 and 12. And it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated upon it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And then verse 15 says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The unbeliever cannot stand before Jesus, but will be forced to bow before the very one who offered salvation but because they rejected him, he will condemn them. Every person will stand before God at judgment and give an account of their own lives. Well, this passage has been such a good reminder of the importance of the unity of the body of Christ. Our Lord commands it. It has also been a reminder that we will never be asked to give an account of the sins and flaws of someone else's life, but we will definitely give an account of our own lives. In Psalm 50, God called out Israel because they forgot that God is going to judge them. They think they can do whatever they want because God has so far been silent. Listen to what God says to them in verse 21. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. He reminded Israel that they were not to forget him just because he's been silent. You may think that you're okay as well, because so far God has been silent and you haven't been judged yet, but you will be. We will all stand before God who will be sitting upon his great white throne, and then every knee will bow before him and we will be judged. If you've forgotten this truth, the God of all grace is reminding you of it today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we remember this coming Friday that it was you who received the judgment and the punishment which we deserved we praise you, our Lord and Savior, who lived, who died, and three days later rose again and lives in heaven so that we might also live forever in your presence. Thank you for these clear instructions that you have given us today. Forgive our arrogance when we judge or criticize another believer for not thinking that our way of honoring you is the best way. Please remind us as we go about our lives, that you alone have the right to rule and to judge. We ask that your Holy Spirit will lead us, giving us a thirst for and an understanding of your word so that we might form opinions which are right and are pleasing to you. Please forgive us for our lack of mercy, and we praise you for your compassion that you've demonstrated by welcoming welcoming us into your kingdom. We thank you for holding our faith steady and for growing our faith throughout our lives. And we thank you that one day you will cause us to be able to stand before our King and our Lord, our righteous judge. You alone are our merciful Savior, our helper and our guide, our King and our master, and our just and loving judge, And for all of these things, we are eternally grateful. Amen.